Welcome everyone to the Progress City Radio Hour and another episode here in our town hall. Boy, things are a little dusty in here. Gotta call the cleaning crew, but I'm happy to be here with the ombudsman um, <laughs> ready to make his presentation. Mr. Michael Crawford, my brother. How you doing, Michael? I'm great. I'm glad all these uh, Toastmaster meetings are finally going to pay off for me here. Man, I got to tell you, uh, I work at a place where the Toastmasters meet on Saturdays. Really? And I I have had a lot of interaction with Toastmasters, which, you know, it's kind of like a dream come true. But I also just found their um, minutes... Uh-huh. A copy of their minutes that they left by their agenda, I guess. And boy, it's like, you know, 859, joke of the day. The Zoom master will proceed to so and so in like two minutes of talking about something you know nothing about. And I'm like, what are these? <laughs> what is going on here? That's most yes. meetings I attend. Well, that's <laughs> true. That's a good point. That's, but, uh, yeah, uh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. They're very so, regimented, it sounds like. A look behind the veil, but yes, here we are, not Toastmastering. Uh, you have you know, benefited from that great experience. What are we here to do today, Michael? Well, I, I mean, I'm glad we're back. It's been far too long since we've had a town hall, as you say. That's you know, true. Got, had to dig out my lemon bar recipe because I, <laughs> I'd forgotten it, you know, and... Uh, snacks and beverages available in the narthex but um yeah it's uh it's time for a town hall and luckily uh, we're getting to talk to somebody who is someone that i've wanted to talk to for a long long time and that is scott hennessy uh scott was a show writer or a writer of of many stripes at imagineering for a long long time Started as so many people did on Epcot and did some of the things we all know and love. Jeff, he wrote Kitchen Cabaret. I know. And, you know, we don't talk to many writers. So this is something near and dear to you and uh, a very interesting perspective coming. But he worked on so many things, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I was very excited. I believe this is the first writer we've had. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And uh, very exciting for me personally, obviously. And yeah, so so many projects. But Kitchen Cabaret, I know Kitchen Cabaret, I, I mentioned this uh, in the interview, but it, it looms large still today. It does. Yes. What a great show. The and younger the, generation yes. has oh, picked my. up on the Kitchen Cabaret. My children love Kitchen Cabaret. Yeah, it's so fun. The The music is so good, and the puns are ever-flowing. Uh, just a wonderful show. Wonderful exactly show. great. So, But Scott worked on many, many other things, which we'll talk about. But yeah, very excited to talk to him. All right, so let's hear your conversation with Scott Hennessy. Today, we'd like to welcome someone I've wanted to speak to for a long time, Mr. Scott Hennessy. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for calling me, I and mean, I appreciate you looking me up. Well, you are the, I'm very excited. You are, I believe, the first Imagineering writer we've had on the show. And so uh, that is very near and dear to my heart. So I'm very excited to talk to you. And you've worked on some of 
you know, some of my favorite things. So I'm really, really happy to hear from you. Well, first of all, I want to preface everything. I'm going to be talking a lot about me and what I did, but I hope the audience understands anything we did at Imagineering wasn't about me. It was about us. There's a lot of, a lot of teamwork involved. So please understand I'm not trying to take any credit for everything. Absolutely. absolutely. I worked worked with some really great people. Yeah. It's, it's always a team effort and uh, you worked on, there was a a lot of talent there in the, in the, in the time you were working there that, I mean, there's always a lot of talent there, but you worked on some pretty amazing teams, but I guess we'll start off with how you came into this. You come from a long Disney lineage, a very, proud Disney and film lineage. So talk a little about your family and how, you know, how you grew up sort of within the film industry. Well, first of all, my grandfather, Hugh Hennessy, he was a a newspaper illustrator and uh, an advertising illustrator back in Washington, D.C. in the late 20s. I do not know the specifics of why, but for some reason in the early 30s, he moved to California and got a job with Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. And you will see his name on such films as Snow White, Pinocchio, Lady and the Tramp, Fantasia. I, I mean, I, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I come from a beginning of a company like that. Unfortunately, my grandfather passed away when I was three years old. Oh. And I have vi- I have one very vague memory of him while I sitting in his living room when I was probably two and a half, three years old. But my father, in the meantime, while my grandfather was at the studio, my father, as a young youngster, started working in the mailroom at the Disney Studios. He and now Disney legend uh, Colin Campbell, they used to take the the, uh, mail around through the animation building. Apparently, they used to get in trouble because there's a dumbwaiter in the building. They used to play in the dumbwaiter all the time. <laughs> but my, my dad was going to school at the time to be a motion picture illustrator. His passion was film. He worked a little bit at the studio for a while. Uh, Walt put him to work doing some illustrations for Main Street and Tomorrowland for his idea of a Disneyland. My dad did. I mean, you, they sell prints of his stuff in some of the Disney galleries, you know, mm. occasionally. But he eventually left, went to Fox, came back to the studio. And uh, I don't know. I don't think Walt was real happy with that because uh, my dad said Walt was never quite the same to him for that. And he continued working there and finally just said, figured, look, it's Walt's company. You know, it, he has the the reins here. So he's going to do what he wants to do with his name on the company. So my dad finally just left and he went out and worked in the motion picture industry as an art director. And a few years later, he won the Academy Award for art direction of the film, Fantastic Voyage. Which is an amazingly art directed film. I suppose he worked with Harper Goff on that. Didn't Harper Goff work on that as well? Harper, Harper designed the submarine. That's right. I thought so. So that's another yeah. uh, Disney connection there. But yeah, your dad, I was looking at his credits. I mean, Logan's Run in like Flint, which is a very fun looking movie. 
uh, Fantastic Voyage. I had seen him recently, his name pop up on TCM on uh, Under the Yum Yum Tree, which oh, is yeah. a very a very fun sort of mid-century design. He's kind of this little... There's this kind of devilish-looking satyr hanging on Jack Lemmon's front door. Mm-hmm. This is it. I'm sorry it's all taped up, but I have a fond memory <laughs> under the Yum Yum Tree right here. In my that's hand. incredible. Oh, that's so much fun. That's such a great, uh, I don't know, uh, that movie just has a very fun design to it and, and all those sort of mid-century bachelor apartment sort of sort of things. It's a great <laughs> deal of fun. So it's, uh, yeah, I've seen him pop up on TCM. And, you know, it's kind of amazing when you think about it. The, the company's coming up on its 100th anniversary in a month now. And your family has been there almost since the very beginning. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I and when I was younger, I didn't think much about it, but uh, as I blossomed, it's like mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm proud of the heritage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so how did you come into the picture then? Well, I was in junior college. I was off for the summer, and I was goofing off. I wasn't doing much of anything, and my dad had just had lunch with some of his friends at at Wed which was Walter Elias Disney. And he had lunch with Colin Campbell. And Colin said, why don't you send your kid over to WED? They're looking for kids to come in for the summer to paint walls and move furniture and stuff like that. So my dad said, why don't you give him a call? Get off your butt and give him a call. <laughs> so I did. I called him. And I don't remember the specifics of the call, but I do remember them going, are you uh, Dale Hennessy's son? I said, yes, I am. He said, do you have an art portfolio? I said, well, I have something. It's not the greatest, but I, I'll bring it in if you'd like. And they said, sure. And I hung up thinking, why do they want an art portfolio if I'm going to be painting walls and moving furniture? <laughs> right. But uh, one of the things I took in, I had built a model of a Japanese temple uh, in high school. It was an assignment. I took that in, and I don't remember who interviewed me, to be honest with you, but they, uh, they, they thanked me for coming in, and I left. And on my way home, I stopped by my grandmother's to, to tell her what I had just done, that I just interviewed for the job. My grandmother was psychic. She, she wasn't one that wore turbans and, and looked at crystal balls and carnivals and stuff like that. She just was, she just, it was just a gift she had. And then as I was talking to her, I could see her doing her psychic thing, and she said, they're going to call you next week. And you're going to have something to do with water. And then at that time in my life, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, all right, I'll probably be drinking from a faucet or something. <laughs> well, anyway, they called me next week. I went in. They signed me to the model shop, gave me a smock. And my very first job was making a bucket for Cinderella in the Mickey Mouse Review. Well, there um, you I'm go. I'm sorry, making a mop for the for the Mickey Mouse review. And I'm, I'm standing with the mop going, yeah, yeah, Grammy, you're right. I'm working around water. <laughs> well, shortly after that, I got assigned to Dave Burkhart, who was building the model for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for the ride at Walt Disney World. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started getting the woo started creeping in on me. I spent a lot of time working on that model with Dave, and it was a great model. We used to build models 
back then that were eye level on platforms at one inch scale as you mm-hmm. could walk through them and you could see pretty much what you were going to see in the attraction. One of my favorite stories is uh, we spent a lot of time making, you know, ships for the graveyard of sunken ships. Mm-hmm. The ships were all, you know, we made them look like they're covered barnacles and broken and, and we had just painted some of them. We left them on a piece of plywood that was sitting on top of a trash can for the night. Well, we came in the next morning and we couldn't find the ships anywhere. It's like, what happened to the ships? We asked all over. Well, it turns out the janitorial crew figured these things are all busted up. They're on top of a trash can. They just threw them away. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't do that. Not around Imagineering. You don't throw anything away. Well, anyway, we ended up making them again, but but, uh, I, I had a really good time working on that model have to go back to the drawing board on that one. Well, what was it like working in the model shop? I, I think a lot of people that people might know from Imagineering started off there in that model shop. So uh, what was it like working there? i tell you, when I started there in the model shop, I thought I'd gone to heaven. I, the people, I, we, we had so much fun. I, I, my alarm would go off in the morning and I'd get up and go, Man, I'm going to work. I couldn't wait to get there. We we just very creative and goofy people that I love mm-hmm. very much. I still uh, think about them frequently. Um, unfortunately, uh, I was taking night classes at the time. I had been accepted to Cal State Los Angeles, but I didn't. I, I needed one more uh, credit, and uh, I I thought I was achieving that and unfortunately i wasn't and uncle sam who at the time was the drafting people uh. called me and said you know what you're gonna get drafted here dude i tried to uh you know get out of it but they said you've got no no basis on which to go so you expect your, your draft notice in july that very same day i got home there was a letter from the volar which is the volunteer army they were having so much trouble finding people volunteering that they changed the rules to where you could now volunteer for two years instead of three years. Okay. I figured if I'm drafted, I'm going to be in for two years. I might as well just go get it over sooner. So I, I enlisted and I went in. I asked to be assigned motion picture photography school. They said you have to be in for three years to do that. But they sent me to Texas, to Fort Hood, Texas, where I developed photographs as a photographic lab specialist for two years oh okay and you know i at least i mean i'm grateful that i wasn't in the jungle getting shot at or any or having to shoot anybody you know yeah uh yeah when (laughs) all things considered not a bad assignment really and even even though it was it was safe and sane i returned to to wed in 73 after i mustered out um I was my, I was a little discombobulated mentally. I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. I thought, I don't know, I, I love the people here, but do I really want to do this the rest of my life? So uh, I, I I left. I went to work for Sid and Marty Croft for a little while. They, they were oh, building, really? They were building a an indoor theme park in Atlanta. Um. Yes. So what can you tell me about that? Because I, I don't know if you know, but this um, this world of Sid and Marty Croft has a great deal of 
I would say online notoriety. Uh, people are very fascinated with this with this attraction. So really, yes, oh, well, absolutely. Because info info about it is very scarce. It's hard to find pictures or maps or you know anything like that. So uh, I think people would be very interested to hear about that. Well, to be honest with you, uh, I thought I thought what I was working on was really subpar stuff. I I didn't think mm-hmm. it was a very intelligently planned park. I mean, I didn't really know, but I thought, you know, this just doesn't isn't working for me. Um, I didn't care for this the char- TV characters. I had outgrown that age sure. level, you know, puffing stuff and <laughs> Sigmund and the sea monster and all that. I I just thought, now these look like goofy Halloween costumes to me. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, I got laid off. I wasn't there that long. I got laid off. Um, but then I got an offer to work in the movie business, which is what I thought I wanted to do. I worked on one low-budget movie called Haunts. Um, it opened for a week in Kansas City and died a painful death. I uh, worked on a couple TV commercials. Um, and then I ended up working on Logan's Run as a prop builder. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. While my dad was calling the shots on the arc there. Uh, but then again, that didn't last long. I got laid off there again. So I got tired of being hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I called Wed and I said, any chance I could come back? And they said, absolutely, come on back. They, and so I went back and started all over from the beginning in 1975 as a model builder. I worked on models for Big Thunder in Florida. I did built more props for for uh, twenty thousand leagues. Um, and there were a lot of little things in there that I couldn't even begin to tell you what they were. But but even though I was enjoying myself uh, and and I liked the work, there was just something about it that just wasn't right for me. And the boss knew it. And he, well, I mean, we were cordial, but he, he was always kind of critical of everything I did. You know, and I just thought this isn't the best fit for me. Well, one of the things they, the company had did at that time was they asked us at the mall shop, if you have any ideas for an attraction or anything, write it up. We'd like to see which what ideas you've got. Well, I wrote up some stuff. I did a whole dinosaur attraction and everything. I didn't think it would go far. Anyway, after a particularly painful discussion with my boss in the model shop, I went home and I was literally starting to write my letter of resignation. I figured, this is it. I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, next day, I got called into Marty Sklar's office. Are you you're aware of Marty? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yes. Marty uh, said, I like what you've done with your words here. How would you like to go upstairs and work with Roly Crump on help him develop concepts for a, a health pavilion that's being done for Epcot. I thought, sure, I'll give it a shot. Now, I'd seen Rolly around the building. I didn't know him at all, but I went up. I talked with him for an hour. Mm-hmm. And after that hour, it was like we'd been old friends for years. <laughs> he, yeah. What a great human being. I, I loved him so much. I'm starting to tear up here because I was just recently at his – his celebration of life ceremony. Um, oh, of course. I mean, here's a here's a guy who knew what he was doing. 
he was very playful, very childlike, not childish, but childlike in his his design executions, but it, it spoke to you and it was it got across all the points that they wanted said in a, in such a delightful way. And I'm thinking, man, I'm working with a genius here. And I would throw out ideas and he would be open to them. And I thought, this is great. And I, th- I expected to be shut down every time I opened my mouth. I had a great time working for him. That's great. It's interesting to hear from somebody who worked with him because, I, I mean, I was lucky enough to just have a few long conversations with him uh, in the past. And he just seemed like a thoroughly delightful person. And just so friendly and open and welcoming. And so it's it's interesting to hear the perspective of somebody who, who worked closely with him. Yeah. I, I, I will always be grateful for my time with Ruley Crump because it was a, it was a game changer for me. Uh, working on the Health Pavilion for Epcot. Um, this is when Steve Kirk came into the company, too. Oh, okay. I saw Steve's portfolio and i thought well i'm screwed <laughs> this guy's <laughs> this guy's great but we became good friends steve and i and uh, we worked on a for the health pavilion we developed a thing called the care of self carousel okay the, the you bet your life gambling hall which had games that, you know if, if you smoke this many cigarettes a day you could possibly live to be this age i mean it was all kinds of playoff of it of a Vegas casino. Mm-hmm. We had a show called the tooth follies to teach children the, how to take care of their teeth. Oh, did you, did you work on the, t- uh, I, so I've seen some art for these different ideas and I've always been intrigued by the tooth follies. So I'd love to hear anything you remember of, of working on these shows because they look like a whole lot of fun. Well, sadly enough, uh, I, I would love to tell you what I could about the Tooth Follies, but it never got more than being an idea. Mm-hmm. I, we never got to a point where we we were going to script it and, and and develop it. You know, uh, we had all these these visuals that were to inspire us when we went to write the show. Apparently, I don't know exactly what happened, but I guess they couldn't get sponsorship, so they had to put the Health Pavilion on the shelf. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um. Meanwhile, during this period, Steve and I were also developing computer games for Communicore. Oh, tell me about that. We were asked to develop a couple computer games. Basically, it, we were given an idea, and we came up with this city grid where all these cars are traveling through all the streets, going left, right, up, and down, all over the place. And you were given the challenge. It was called Taxi Driver. And you were the taxi driver, and the one concept was you have a pregnant woman in your car. You got to get her to the hospital in the fastest and safest way and avoid all these <laughs> other. It was kind of complicated at the time. Uh, probably computer gamers now would probably turn their nose up at it. But we chose that subject matter because my wife happened to be pregnant at the time. Oh, perfect. But but I would imagine you know working on those kind of games at the time that you were doing this the late seventies around nineteen eighty or so there I mean there weren't that many games to model yourself after they were just there wasn't a lot of t- you couldn't get it off the shelf really you no. had to come up with it yourself no we were working with engineers who were creating this stuff for the first time 
You know, another project I did for Community Corps uh, was Smart One, the little robot. Absolutely, yes. Tom Fitzgerald was the original writer on that. But he he was so busy, I'm guessing on Horizons, that he asked if I could take on the project. And I said, sure. I don't remember the, the exact details of what I wrote for that, but I know it was a branching script, which that was unusual at the time, too, where Smart One would answer you one way or give you another answer another time. I, it, was, it was a good learning curve for me. Hmm. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, that's a different different kind of a different kind of thing, especially for the time. And he became a sort of a, a little icon for the park. Yeah. Really. Yeah. They still make merchandise merchandise with him on it. Really? Years like, oh yeah. I've got a little little vinyl figure of him right here on my desk, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, were you part of any of the talks? I know with, when they were talking about building this arcade in Communicore, they had uh, Apple come at one point and talk. Were you in, in any of those talks? No, I wasn't. No. Oh, okay. I was part of a tour, though, that showed Steve Jobs and, and Steve Wozniak around our facility in Glendale. Oh, that's amazing. And... Neither one of them talked to us. It was kind of kind of weird. That's that's odd. You know, because they had so much to offer with with what they were doing that could have been incorporated into anything we were doing at Communicore or Epcot. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. They were keeping their cards close to their chest. I suppose so. Did you ever? Were you ever have to take part in any? pitches because you mentioned this with health about looking for different sponsors and things did you ever have to pitch you know corporations or anything like that oh yeah yeah in fact the next thing i worked on was uh, the land pavilion we did a lot of pitches to craft who was uh-huh. the, they were the original sponsor of the pavilion mm-hmm. they told our management they wanted to show about nutrition guidelines at that time which was eat something from the four food groups at every meal. Mm-hmm. Steve Kirk, Jeff Burke, and myself, we sat in a room. Uh, Roley put us in a room and said, come up with an idea. And we came up with the Kitchen Cabaret. And that was the first show I literally wrote a script for. Uh, oh, okay. And there again, I had so much fun. I thought, man, this, this is the greatest career ever. So how does where does this idea come from? Because the idea of doing a sort of retro cabaret review starring the four food groups is such a wild idea, but it works so it was such a great show. It worked so great. So I'm really intrigued of uh, how you guys came up with this idea. Well, uh, there again, I don't remember a lot. I do remember Jeff Burton going, you know, what if we 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 did a cabaret type show, but in a kitchen? And we mm-hmm. all kind of looked at each other and went, that sounds pretty good. Let's 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 flush it out. Well, we flushed out the idea and Roley went crazy over it. He thought it was great. Then we flew to Chicago, pitched the idea to Kraft. And they bought into it, hook, line, and singer. And next thing we know, we were we were creating that show, building the, the figures are getting built and the sets are getting built. And One of my uh, <laughs> favorite stories is, is the in the pre-show, there was a, you know, you're, you're liking a on a little city street, and one of the windows mm-hmm. above above the marquee, it said, uh, 
Kirk, Burke, and Hennessy, attorneys at law. <sighs> I never noticed that. That's fantastic. Well, the reason you didn't notice it is Marty Sklar saw it, and he went ballistic. <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to have, take credit for anything, you know, back then. Gotcha. But we changed it to cook, bake, and fricassee. <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. Uh, I had always heard that Marty's, I don't know if this is uh, a, apocryphal or not, that Marty's wife didn't like Bonnie Appetit. Do you know that anything is, about that? that? Oh, oh, boy, do I. No. Marty's wife was showing some of her friends through WED one day, and Marty asked us to show her the kitchen cabaret. And we were used to people giving us kudos and loving the show and we showed it to them, and it was like dead silence. And we we're kind of wondering, what the hell? What? And Leah and her friends just laid into us about stereotyping women, putting them, dressing them sexy like that, and putting them in the kitchen. And oh no! It, it was the early days of women's live. And That's we, amazing. Yeah. We we would have changed it we might have changed it but unfortunately by the time they saw their the figures are in construction and you know we were way too far along so at least you know i know one person who really hated the show <laughs> oh mercy that's something well i had seen at some point there was a memo one of these sort of touch-up memos that John Hinch would send out with, like, lists of little things to change. And at some point, they had said, uh, she must have a wedding ring painted on her finger. And I always thought that was intriguing. I don't know who 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 wanted her to be married, but somebody did. Well, that's news to me, but that doesn't surprise me. That does not surprise me. <laughs> that's so funny. I just, I had never thought about the show that way because I just, I love Bonnie Appetit so much. I thought she was such a fun character, but... Yeah, I could see how they could get there, but uh, yeah, yeah, it never really occurred to me. Well, it was the time. I mean, the television shows like Dean Martin and those types of shows, they would always have a girl on there with the, the nylons up to her waist and the stockings up to her waist and the glittery costume mm -hmm. dancing yeah. around. We thought, well, Bonnie wasn't any different than that. You know, right, but yeah, I guess she was, it was a showbiz, showbiz, showbiz exactly. But I guess because she was in the kitchen, <laughs> we, we crossed <laughs> the line with some women. So that's interesting. Uh, so this, this was really fun show. I have to say that uh, my brother has kids, uh, you know, in the, you know, the sort of seven, seven to four range and, you know, there are videos of this show online. And I know another friend of mine has a very young child and they love watching videos of this show. They love, uh, they'll still listen to the soundtrack of this wow. show. And uh, I, at some, I always say, I hate to break it to them at some point that it's been gone for however many years it's been gone, but, but they love this show and like, they love the soundtrack. So there's, I think a real lasting appeal. So, you know, you, you wrote these songs, didn't you? I wrote the lyrics. The lyrics. Buddy Baker wrote the music. Well, and George Wilkins was the one that, that arranged it all when we recorded it. Oh, okay. It must have been something working with Buddy Baker, because he's, you want to talk about a legend of, a musical legend in the Disney realm. Oh, I, I took the lyrics to Buddy, and I explained to him what we were trying to accomplish with each one, and 
within a matter of days, he knew exactly what we were doing, and he created all these this music that fit everything we just as we had envisioned it. Uh, he was something else. Uh, that, yeah, it must. I I don't know. It just strikes me as a very fun show. I would imagine it would have been a lot of fun to work on. Uh, it was great. It was. Unfortunately, it spoiled me because what came after, <laughs> it wasn't as much fun. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I want to say I've read a lot of comments online over the years that, well, the Kitchen Cabaret, uh, you know, it, it ran its course. It wasn't that good anymore. We had to get rid of it. And other people said, I wish you would come back. It was so great. The thing was that each Epcot Pavilion, when it opened, had a sponsor, in, in the case of the land pavilion, it was craft, had a 10-year contract. So at the end of that 10 years, Kitchen Cabaret could have been the greatest show in the history of theme park shows, but it would still have to go away because the contract then transferred over to Nestle. Right. Also in that 10 years, the nutrition guidelines in the country had changed. It turned into the food pyramid, I think, and it was no mm -hmm. longer the four food groups with each meal. So the show was destined to... Yeah, those... those. I feel like those corporate partnerships were... It, it's so strange because Epcot probably couldn't have existed at the start without them. In fact, I'm pretty sure it probably couldn't have without that investment. But at the same time, it kind of locked you into the cycle of having to change things that probably you wouldn't want to have otherwise changed just because of, of what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, kitchen cabaret opens. Did you ever work with, I, I assume you would have worked with the advisory panel because every pavilion had these advisory. Panels. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you, anybody memorable from those that you worked with? Not really, not on the land pavilion. I just remember pitching the show to their CEO at the time. And uh, he, I there's no smile whatsoever. Wouldn't crack a smile. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> I'm in <deep> trouble here. <laughs> but uh, he apparently said, go for it. So. Yeah. And everything I've seen from Kraft, they seem very serious. I had seen one memo that had been passed down to your team of when they went to Chicago, everybody was advised to dress very formally <laughs> mm -hmm. because they look down on, they don't want any, you know, counterculture types walking in here dressed weird. They, they wanted everybody to dress up. So I would imagine these corporations would be pretty, pretty strict. One, one advisor I always hear about that I know Roley talked about a lot was he called him Dr. Chuck for life and health. Chuck Lewis. Yeah. Chuck Dr. Lewis. Chuck Lewis. Yeah. yeah. Great he, guy. He seemed to be a, a somebody people really liked a lot. Very much so, and he had a lot of good ideas, and he, he was he was very playful in his own way, but he was very very serious and, and explained things, you know, tough medical stuff in such a way that Steve Kirk and I understood what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Doctor Chuck. Dr. Chuck. So you work on Rolly's team for life health. You, he, you go with him to the land. Did you do any work on the science and invention show that he was working on for GE for a brief time there? I worked with Steve on, with Rolly 
on invention and enterprise. Okay. And we we were going to have an AA. Thomas Edison is the star of that show. Interesting. And Steve and I, for that, developed a cartoon called Birth of a Notion, <laughs> which, which is about two cavemen that end up being pestered by Mother Necessity, which was this cloud that kept hovering over them. She, she pestered them into inventing the umbrella. And, okay. and, through, and through the course of the cartoon, they learned that they could sell these umbrellas and, and then, you know, d- divert, get diversity and do other things with the umbrellas and form a company and get bigger and bigger. And ba- basically, it was the American Enterprise story. Okay. That's interesting. When it was found out that the, the pavilion was not going to be built, Rolly said, well, I want to see if we can get this cartoon made. So we took it to the studio to the animation division of the studio. And we showed it to Ron Miller and whoever was head of that animation at that time. And they looked at it and they they just said, no, this is going to cost over a million dollars. We can't afford it. So it died. Oh, that's a shame. And, and not only that, we went back to the studio not that long after to get the storyboards back. They had thrown it away. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. So we were like, what the heck? Oh, so, that's oh, that's rough. Well, I was sitting here wondering if their storyboards were sitting in the room somewhere, but I guess not. Gosh. Nope. And it, but before, before Invention Enterprise, um, I went to, Steve and I went to work with Tony Baxter on the Imagination Pavilion. Oh, okay. That was a challenge because... I thought Tony had this right idea. I mean, he, he it was his baby, he, his uh, view of what imagination is, I thought was the best. I would I would write a script, Tony would change it to, to his way of thinking, then we'd send it off to the executives. Well, every executive in the building had a different opinion of what imagination was. Okay. <laughs> so sure. I ended up juggling all these opinions, trying to make a script work that would appease to everybody. And I, I literally, I, I didn't rewrite the script every time, but when it was all said and done, I had done like 52 drafts of, of oh the script. Gosh. And by that time, someone else took over and I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Were these scripts with Figment and Dreamfinder or was yeah. this something else? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, and it was all the stuff Figment would say throughout the ride. Now, there's another gentleman who was head of Kodak at the time. We presented to him another gentleman who didn't do a lot of smiling either. <laughs> but what I remember mostly about him, we were showing him a model of Figment for the first time. That Steve Kirk had, had done a drawing. Blaine Gibson had made a model. Figment was green. The head of Kodak said, I don't want anything this green in the pavilion because I don't want anything in there that reminds them of Fuji film. <laughs> So hence, Figment became purple. He became purple, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Another thing on that pavilion is that uh, this guy had written a song for the pavilion. We all liked the melody, but the lyrics were, there again, it's like his his interpretation of imagination didn't match what everyone else was thinking. Uh-huh. Was that Bob Moline? Bob Moline? Was- I think it was, I think it was him. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then I wrote a, a lyric, and Buddy Baker put it to music. 
everybody seemed to like the lyric, but they didn't like the music. <laughs> so, sure. so the next thing I know, I'm in a meeting and the Sherman brothers walk in. And that was like, well, that was, that was a, a really special for me because uh, these, these, they were the greatest guys, no errors about them. They were down to earth, very easy to work with. Bob gave me a lot of lyric writing tips and, I thought this this is great, and then when they came back with one little spark, um, we all fell in love with that song. We thought it was perfect for this oh, perfect absolutely. perfect Disney song for for that that attraction. Do you know who thought to bring them in? Was that Tony that brought them in? I don't know if it was Tony or Marty. Yeah, I I would guess either one of them could have brought them in, but it's a good. I mean, it, it's, it was a good. It's hard call. to beat them. Yeah, it's hard to beat those guys. You know, I, I, I hear people today talk about how much they hate It's a Small World. They hate that song. And, and granted, if I had to work in that attraction eight hours a day, I'd probably get a little tired of it, too. But I think the song is genius because, first of all, I'm a big fan of Less is More. And that song is so simple, mm -hmm. but it communicates so strongly that I, I, don't, I don't think I could ever be topped. Agree. As so, it does its job so well. Yeah. And you know, something that can have that much, that many versions, but still blend together in a seamless way. Uh, yeah. There's, you know, they, nobody does it like those those fellows did. Absolutely. You know, one of my my favorite stories about imagination was it had been open a few years, and I still smarted a little bit over the. The, the nonsense over the script and everything. But Marty Sklar circulated a letter that this mother had sent to the company saying that she had a child, I believe he was six or seven, who never spoke. And they were, mm. they, they were horrified and, and terrified about what was wrong with the child. They took him through the Imagination Pavilion. He saw Figment and he started speaking. Oh, wow. And this letter... The, it was a tearjerker the way this mother was thanking us and so grateful for for that that whole experience. And I thought, you know what? I might have been a little annoyed <laughs> during that the creation of that show, but man, this makes it all worth it. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. I mean, I just think it shows how deeply these these attractions touch people. And you know, I was I was a child. Our first trip, I was five years old when we went in 1982 in the fall of just in October, actually, of 82, right after it opened. And, it, you know, the park just made such an imprint on me, all these all these different attractions and imagination and, all, you know, all these things. So I think they leave a, a deep mark on people. They really do. I'm on, I'm on a Facebook site called Epcot 82, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I read the comments and it made an impression on a lot of people. And a lot of people are just complaining about what the park's become today. And I I, I haven't I was going to see the park. I was there at Coronado Springs with my family, and we were standing in front of the hotel waiting for the bus to Epcot when I got a text from my family in Seattle saying that my mother was dying. Oh no! So, so instead of going on the bus to Epcot, I went on the bus to the airport and flew to oh, Seattle. That's, that's terrible. Well, it was it was time, you know. You know, she was ninety two. 
Yeah, you never. That's the. Actually, I I believe my parents had come down to Disney World at one time and got a similar message about my grandfather. So, you know, never never the kind of thing you want to hear on vacation. But yeah, you know, exactly. get back in the car and head home. You know. Well, I've got a two-year-old grandson now who who I love dearly, and we will we will be coming back to Walt Disney World at some time in the future. Oh, fascinating! Oh, that's yeah, that, yeah, that's always fun. That's always fun. Well, you know, you talk about this group of this Facebook group. What really amazes me, being somebody who was there to see Epcot in those early years. But there's a whole generation now, you know, I was talking about my nephew and my niece, but there are people in their, you know, 20s, maybe even 30s who they were never saw they never saw Horizons or Kitchen Cabaret or the original imagination. But they love these rides. They like revere these rides. So it it, it really did leave a mark that you know, even generations after. I I just find it amazing. Yep. Yeah, it it Sometimes I wonder why, but <laughs> is this the right the right thing at the right time and the right people? You you have a good team of people. There you go. I, I did want to ask about that invention and enterprise that show of Edison you did. Was that a carousel theater show? No, we never got to that point where it would have been that or, or stage show or whatever. You know, oh, okay. Or, so or like in America Sings, it's just we kept getting. <laughs> kicked in the teeth every time we came up with a new idea right you know so they just figured that's eh, not worth let's not pursue it anymore so did you do installation for any of these shows were you in florida for any of this i was in for installation with uh, rick rothschild on on um, um backstage magic in communicore Oh, okay, so this would have been after opening. I just wondered what what opening was like for you. Um, oh no, no, I was I was not high enough on the totem pole at that point, to, to, or I deserved a, a trip to Florida. <laughs> a trip although, to Florida. although about ten months after Epcot opened, they did send a bunch of us down there just to see the park, just to walk around the park. Oh, okay. And of course, you know we were all idiots. Uh, we started drinking beer. In the England showcase <laughs> pavilion, and we had a beer at every pavilion. <laughs> By the time we got to Mexico, we had no idea where we were. <laughs> you could have been at Epcot. You could have been anywhere. It, it <laughs> wouldn't matter much. Well, you mentioned backstage magic. Um, you know that was the first Epcot rehab, and that came really quick. So it replaced a Studer Computer Review, which was Epcot's, you know, the record for the the shortest lasting show. What yeah. was the reason? What was the reason for you having to come in and and do that? Well, apparently this the the, sh the show was performed by a young English song and dance man. I forget his name. Mm -hmm. it, it told the story of how computers ran all of Epcot, but I don't know. Something just didn't work with this Englishman telling the story. I'm not really a hundred percent sure, but I just know the audience reactions wasn't that great. Mm -hmm. So I was asked to, to come on and take another approach to it, and with Rick Rothschild, and we came up with uh, backstage magic. So this was uh, this was a pretty quick turnaround for you too, wasn't it? You, yeah. you guys had to do this pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. That was, there were a lot of long hours on that that project. So you what you re rewrote the show for a new host, 
I, I don't remember her name. It was a, a female her, host. Her name was Julie. Julie. I, that's, yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah. So what was, what, you know, what was your focus going in? What I assume Sperry, the, the sponsor had, had things that they were, they were wanting to get across, I guess. Right. Right. Well, first of all, we, we created the, the character IO input output. Right. Uh, we, we did it. Uh, uh, like a pre-show to the main show, which was uh, a cartoon on uh, how computers work, how the history of computers and how they work. Mm, mm-hmm. Another another lesson, great lesson learned there is uh, we we showed a, an ancient Chinese guy uh, using an abacus. For some reason, in the in team meeting, we all decided we would make this ancient Chinese guy a running gag throughout the show. Mm-hmm. So every time he saw him later on, he was still in his ancient garb. Well, boy, did we get letters. We got really? letters from Chinese-American organizations and another Chinese group. And uh, needless to say, we quickly changed that character into wearing appropriate clothing for the period he was in. Interesting. Yeah, so they, you had to go back and sort of re- reanimate or redraw some of, some of that show. Yeah. Yeah, who had to make it not be so stereotypical. Interesting. So, well, it sounds like from from what I've seen, I I was looking through some old memos and things that I've seen, and it sounds like Sperry was pretty pleased with what you guys came up with, especially so quickly. Well, uh, I, that was my impression. I certainly <laughs> I was reading them right. I didn't hear anything negative. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a it was a grueling project, but we. I remember during installation. I mean, I worked like forty eight hours straight at one point. One oh, point, I, at one point, I found a conference room in the middle of the night. And I crawled underneath the table to go to sleep, and the next thing I know, I'm having a meeting at <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I just got up and said, "See you guys." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I thought uh, I had this room booked already. <laughs> well, I would imagine it would be difficult to get that show installed because it was a working facility because that that area was in use. Well, the the, the big pane of glass was the only headache for those working on the computers down there when they installed that glass because that's how the magic worked. Mm-hmm. You saw Julie working on walking on top of the computer consoles. She's actually on a video monitor underneath the audience that's that's synced with the top of the console. So as the monitor moved along, it looked like she was walking on top of the the consoles. Okay. And yeah, I never thought that it's the old it's the old haunted mansion gag, but and for the twenty first century, I suppose. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Pepper's ghost. Pepper's ghost. So after Backstage Magic, uh, was Living Seas next for you? Was that what came next? There again, I worked with Rolly and Steve. We were, we were talking about developing a, a child's play area. Oh, okay. For Eptot. And we called it Eptot. Steve Kirk <laughs> came up with Eptot. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, that went nowhere. But uh, I was recently reading where they're looking at doing something in Epcot now. And someone was saying, well, we're going to call it Eptot. I thought, do you know what it was called 
back in the eighties. <laughs> right. Steve would be proud. Yeah, absolutely. A good idea never dies. After that, though, I uh, I was given a break from Epcot. I went to work for a pre-show for America the Beautiful at Disneyland. It was sponsored by Pacific Southwest Airlines. So they wanted something, of course, with their planes in it. And uh, we did a, a show called All Because Man Wanted to Fly. We probably couldn't call it that now. It'd be All Because We Wanted to Fly or, mm -hmm. all, you know, but we had... Uh, Orville from the Rescuers as the star and the narrator. Oh, okay. And I've seen a lot of stuff on uh, online guessing who was the voice of Orville. Oh, yeah? Well, in the movie, The Rescuers, he was played by an actor named Jim Jordan, not okay. the politician from Ohio. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> but the... Uh, I guess he had he was very famous in radio. He did a show called Fever McGee and Molly. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. But when we talked to him, he was in his nineties. He said, Look, I'm retired. I don't want to do this anymore. So we ended up hiring Wayne Allwine, who was the voice of Mickey Mouse. Okay. Who was married to Rusie Taylor, who was the voice of Minnie Mouse. Right. Yeah. But Wayne was very versatile and he did a, a good job filling in for for Oral, and that was a fun project because we didn't we had some new animation created for it, but we relied mostly on a film that Ward Kimball had done about the history of flight. So we borrowed heavily from from that film, which right. made it made it more entertaining. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, a good a good film that, that those old Kimball shorts about. Uh, history of flight and space and all that stuff. Those oh, yeah. Are really fun. Well, I'm going to get to him in a minute again, too. We used oh, good. But next came a pre-show for Tokyo Disneyland. For There was a, a 3D film called Magic Journeys. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And they wanted a pre-show for that. So uh, we did a simple animated piece that, that, that illustrates how we – you know, you, we see things in 3D, and we encourage the audience to cover one eye. And it was all told by a, a one-dimensional line who <laughs> then morphed into a two-dimensional drawing and then had the audience looking at stuff with one hand over their eye. So they understood the concept of why you see things in three dimension. Interesting. I have never heard of this show. I, I, I knew Magic Journeys went to Tokyo, but I didn't know that they got a a different pre-show there than they had in America. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I don't think it lasted very long. I never went to Tokyo at that time. Uh, I stayed, I was in the States, but I worked with a group from Tokyo that I would get to know very well later in my career, but they weren't real happy with the, the pr product either, so that might have had something to do with it. Hmm. Do you know why? What 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 issues did they have? You know? They felt that the animation wasn't up to Disney quality standards. Oh, okay. You know, because we we cheap, cheaped out. We went outside to a, another animation house that was far less expensive than than our own people. Mm -hmm. So I think that had a lot to do with it. Interesting. I assume that's what you did with the, did you do that with the backstage magic pre-show as well? Go to an outside company? Yeah. Oh, okay. 
we used a gentleman named Bryce Mack, who used to be an animator at the studio, and he had his own organization outside of the company. So he did all the, the animation for us. It's nice to have a guy who understood the product. You know, he wasn't with the company, but he understood it because he was part of it for so long. Yes, absolutely. Well, when I feel this, this is an era when a lot of people were doing that, going off to start their own thing, but they still had Disney connections. They would still, you know, think of like Bob Rogers and people like that yeah. who would branch out, but still work for Disney. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what was next for you? Yeah. The Living Seas. Oh, okay. That, that was a. A great experience. I love that pavilion. I have not seen what it's become. I'm, I'm not hearing great things about it online, but because people miss the original pavilion. But I, I'm, I'm, I have to see it for myself to make those judgments for me. But there worked with two people on their advisory board specifically. One was Dr. Sylvia Earle, who was a marine oh, wow. biologist and an explorer. She's the one who went down like 1,500 feet in the gym suit. I don't know if you remember the gym suit. You know, oh yes, oh yes, very well. Yeah, it looked it looked like kind of like the Michelin tire man he had an air hose stuck inside of him, it pumped him <laughs> up. Right. She was real big on on being able to when you're exploring the ocean, being able to see with your own eyes the actual thing you're looking at, and that's why the gym suit was her 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 way of doing things. You know, the one in the pavilion, you you'd sit behind it and you'd move it and you'd see what it was like. To work mm -hmm. under that kind of pressure and water. But on the other side of the table, there was a man, Dr. Robert Ballard from the Woods Hole Institute. Of course. Right. Another great guy. Very easy to get along with. He had developed a three-person three submersible called Alvin. Okay. And, and using Alvin... No, I'm sorry, not with Alvin. He'd also developed a, a remote-operated vehicle, uh, which is a deep-sea submersible with a camera in it called Argo. Okay. And using that technology, uh, the Navy asked him if he could possibly find the Scorpion, which was a nuclear-powered sub that had disappeared. Mm -hmm. and, he and he did it. He found it for him. And when we first met him in 85, or not, no, we met him in 84. It was before 85 because he told us his goal was to find the Titanic. Right, yes. And while we were working on the pavilion, he found it in 1985. That's amazing. And I tend to agree with him. He said, I look and I, I found it. He, says, he said, I don't want people going down there and touching it because it's a grave site. You know, it's right. a memorial. Unfortunately, in fact, I just read in the news the other day that that the United States is trying to prevent people from going down there and, you know, picking up stuff and making museum exhibits and trinkets. I saw out that of too. That there's there's a group that's like literally trying to go and just take stuff. I, I I saw that as well. But but based on his his invention called Argo, which is the undersea re remote operated vehicle, where you could take a thing down with a camera and pick up things at a deeper level. Than, than the gym suit. Oh, and we, we did the show Jason. Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. The little yellow guy. The little, little yellow robot, which was mm -hmm. not exactly a, 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 an actual design of a submersible, but what would look like it. And he, he 
playfully discussed what it was like living on the bottom of the ocean and doing stuff which was animated. Now, this was another hard one for me because, A, once I got the script written and approved, we shot it, and the executive said, you know, what if we did this? What if we did that? You know, So the next thing I know, I've got a, a, a girl who was host of a, of like a Hello Houston TV show. Mm-hmm. I'm very personable, charming young lady who was like giving all the information and she was the one interacting with the robot on the screen. Okay. She was on the screen interacting with the robot in the pavilion. And then Michael Eisner came along and said, I don't know, why don't we do something different? <laughs> so then we did it with Robert Ballard. Bob Ballard was the guy on the ship talking to the robot. Right, right. And and we all looked at that, and out of respect to him, because he's such a, a renowned scientist and, and very dignified in what he does, we, we thought, you know, this just doesn't make it, this isn't fit for him. He, he looked kind of like a goofball. So mm-hmm. I, had to, I had to call him and tell him we're going in another direction. And he, he was cool. He said, I understand that. Don't worry about it. I was like, phew. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a call you hate to have to make, for sure. But but then we ended up just doing the robot being the main narrator. And uh, I think what happened, I probably would have done it again, but we were running out of time and money. So. Yeah. And there again, Bryce Mack did the animation for us on this, the screen. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that's a very that's a very memorable show. Both of, both of those things. I think everybody has a photo of themselves in the gym suit and yeah. uh, trying to turn those little wheels and things, and trying to at least. Oh, by the way, for for the the gym suit, there was another cartoon that ran in that room called Suited for the Sea, which I was a part of. Oh yeah, and that there again, we took a lot of Ward Kimball animation from a show he had done on the wonderful world of Disney or something about the history of man's attempt to get under the ocean. And and so we, we took all that in animation and incorporated it into a show where we had a father fish and a son fish and, and the son's asking questions of his father about what, what are all these people coming down here? And the father was explaining the history of why they're down here. And it ends up at the end with the two of them sitting on the beach and a fish bowls on their head saying, this is the only way they're going to get peace and quiet from now on. <laughs> yeah. The seas had a lot of, a lot of fun little media exhibits like that. I would imagine there was, it was a lot of work to do to program all these because there were a lot of little shows like this. I remember the animated Atlas of the world and other things like yeah. that. Yeah. A lot of those little shows. Plus the atmosphere. I love the atmosphere in there. It was, it was really felt like you were in a, a sea base somewhere, especially with all these fish swimming by you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the art, just the art direction of that, the sea base uh, was really incredible. Really. I mean, you felt like you were on Star Trek or something, but just underwater, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was Tim Delaney. Tim Delaney did a great job art directing that pavilion. Yeah. He's, Super talented guy. Did you did you enjoy working with him? Yes, very much. Yeah. In fact, he he, he brought it up. We, I, I think this show was the pavilion was supposed to open in January, but we had to have everything done by November, okay, so that they could start cast member training and, you know, 
testing stuff and and this was July and we were already panicking about which version of Jason are we going to get done <laughs> and Tim goes Jason June June July August September October November <laughs> <laughs> It was a sign. It was a sign. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Eisner, and you know you would have been working on this, uh, or the team would have been working on C's during the time when all that change happened with Eisner coming in. How did that change Imagineering from your perspective? How how or did things change? Or, or oh how did they change? yes, they changed quite dramatically. Yeah. Not on the seas for me, but after the seas, started working on the next version of the health pavilion, mm -hmm. Wonders of Life. And again, Steve Kirk and I, uh, we, we created a show called The Head Trip, where you sat inside a human head. Mm -hmm. And then we had a, we were going to take a ride through a human body. And, you know, we went through a lot of iterations. At this time, the studio had gotten their talons into what was being done at the MGM studio tour, Disney MGM mm -hmm. studio tour. They finished over there. So here we are sitting there like, like sitting duck studio comes over. Basically I've been working on the head trip for three years off and on, uh, with a great group of health advisors. Basically they said, Goodbye. We're going to take it from here. It's our our baby from now on. Hmm. So I'd been working on Cranium Command, which the head trip became, and I was working on Body Wars, which was a title Michael Eisner wanted. Um, by the way, I'm thinking, you know, here I am working on a ride through the body, and I'm thinking of my father working on Fantastic Voyage. I'm thinking, what? There's, there's something there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But. Uh, uh, and I was also working on a show called Goofy About Health, where Chick Russell and I sat in the net at bay one day and watched like 50 years of Goofy cartoons. Oh, my gosh. We started the morning laughing our heads off, and by the end of the day, I was like, get us out of here. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that show was left unscathed by the studio. They didn't want any part of it for some reason, but the studio wanted to take over Body Wars and Cranium Command. And I was basically standing there going, well, what am I supposed to do? And I went to Marty, and Marty says, you stay on the project. You, you, just, you just follow up with everything. I did, and it's like, they didn't want me there. You know, I, I, it was a very difficult period for me. Yeah, I would imagine. And I'm not, I think what they did with the, the product, they did a very good job. I mean, Cranium Command turned out to be very successful and very funny, and you know, it, it it was a little, they they broke some of the rules that I had discussed with the health advisory group, but they didn't seem to care, and the health advisors said, well, we can let it slide. Oh, like what? What what kind of what kind of rules? Well, at the time, people thought um, left brain, right brain, there was some controversy over the, the way the two hemispheres worked, mm. and what, what the studio did was put the, the thinking of the day, which was actually evolving into something else. And, and 
but I don't think the, the audience ever knew or re ever registered with the audience. Mm -hmm. When you were working on Body Wars, was it still a like a dark ride, or had it become a simulator by that point? It had become a simulator. How how that happen? How they make that transition to from? Because I know the original, it was just a almost like a roller coaster. Is that correct? It was. It was going to be like a roller coaster with a with a a musical score of classical music. Oh my goodness! So each each organ had its its own suite, or or well, I don't know. I don't know my my uh, classical music terms, but. Mm -hmm. But uh, we were showing the idea to Michael Eisner one day, and he said, "I want this to be called Body Wars. I wanted a, I want a title with sizzle." <laughs> and, and then shortly uh -huh. after, we put it in the. I don't remember if that was before or after the simulator came upon us, but it ended up in the simulator, and I don't know if they did it today. I was going to ILM. Industrial Light and Magic, and I'm checking in on the film product at the time before I wasn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but uh, I thought the film turned out very well, the film product. I'm not too crazy about the story, the casting. The casting really bugged me. Oh, yeah? Well, first of all, we, we originally wrote it, the, the doctor was supposed to be a mature older doctor who'd been around you would believe but then they end up using elizabeth shoe was very young at the time mm -hmm. and I, I thought huh i don't know if i believe her being you know a, a doctor mm -hmm. All right and then um the uh pilot the simulator pilot his name was jack braddock which was a, you know it was like a that kind of name of a guy with chutzpah you know Mm -hmm. You know, kind of a rule breaker. You know, well, oh, what's his name? They used the guy from Nice Guy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. He was I can't in, think of his name right now. Yeah, I can't either. He was in uh, Animal House. Animal House, yeah. But anyway, and no, he did a good job. He was fun to talk with and everything, but I I just see him as being the the brash, you know, rule-breaking pilot that... that uh, that I envisioned when we first started. Spent a lot of time with um, Leonard Nimoy, who was the director. Oh, how was that? That's yeah. He, that's... Nice guy, very nice guy. He was open to suggestions. He he was just pleasant to work with for the short time I was there. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about you know you mentioned how the sort of the head the head trip evolved into. Cranium Command. How did that show change? Uh, that's a show that a lot of people have a lot of interest in, and uh, you know, Cranium Command has quite a quite a fan base, I guess you'd say. But was that something that you had originally been working on for the earlier version of Life and Health, and it just kind of the idea survived, or was that something new for the second attempt? It was pretty much new for the second attempt. Oh, okay. We had a, an artist there who. He was asked to do something about the brain, and he, he he basically you'd have to have a PhD in medicine to understand what he wanted to communicate because it was very very heavy-handed, <laughs> and 
Marty said, he came to Steve Kirk and I said, we Disneyize this up, please, you know. And Steve said, what if we sat in somebody's head and looked out, looked out the eyes and see how, see how the brain responds to certain stimuli and stuff. And, then, and I started to develop, I developed a script. Then we had another executive saying, well, I don't know if this show will last with this one script. We got to have two or three more scripts to see if we can change it out down the road. So I ended up writing three, three different scripts. Um, the one we ended up with was how how you react to certain situations. You either act with reason or you act with emotion. Mm-hmm. When you act with reason, you're pretty much doing all right. When you act with emotion, that triggers things in your body that, like the fight and flight response, fight or flight response, and and that causes all kinds of things to happen. Your stomach shuts down. You start breathing heavy. Your heart pumps more. That builds up over over time. You know, it weakens you down. So, so that's the, the direction we went in. But we had these little characters that were kind of like John and Joan Q. Everybody's. They they weren't specific human being. Mm-hmm. Michael Eisner, whose son was 13 at the time, came over and said, I'd like to see this in the head of a 13-year-old boy. Of course, yes. So when it was taken away, it became in the head of a 13-year-old boy. So how far along had it gotten? How far How far along in the process was it when when Eisner came in and changed changed it up like that? Oh, we, we'd, we'd already started shooting film. We, we'd been up in up in uh, San Francisco shooting a lot of the film product that was going to really? be seen, seeing out the eyes. And that was another thing. I'd fly up there and, and tell the, the animation company that they were done. And then tell the film company they were done. That was, that was not fun. Yeah. That was a very painful, painful period for me. Yeah. I would imagine so. And well, and I think that just speaks to some of the bigger changes that came through at the time with with Eisner and with I mean, Katzenberg was involved in all this as well, wasn't he? He's the one who told me I wasn't working on the project anymore. Oh gosh, yeah, gosh. So, and I bet he but, wasn't a fun one to hear that from either. I can imagine. Well, you know, it was a learning experience. I try to look back on it and think what what did I learn from it? How did I grow from that whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. I actually have posters of Body Wars and Cranium Command in my home home office upstairs. And, and oh, that's very. My good. wife bought them for me, and I thought, why would you buy something that pissed me off so much? <laughs> but then, but then, I, seriously, I, I do look at them occasionally, and I go, I grew from that. There was a growth, internal growth, spiritual growth, mental growth. You know, something I had to go through. Right, right. Well, and it shows the the ideas were. The core idea of it survived and yeah. d- did did very well in the end. So, so that's something you know. That's that's not nothing. I I thought Jerry Reese, who directed Cranium Command, did a great job. I thought mm-hmm. I thought the show turned out pretty darn good. Body Wars, I thought was okay, even though I, I wrote a lot of that script. <laughs> oh yeah. The the problem with Body Wars uh, is that. The operational term for it was protein spills. Are you yes. familiar with? Yes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people threw up in that ride. And we tried to figure out what 
why and we think i don't know if anyone ever figured it out for, for real but we think it's because like in star tours even though you're diving down into these caverns and dodging meteorites and all that stuff there's still a sense of a horizon line so your brain can can figure out okay i'm i'm in space i'm turning left i'm turning right i'm doing this in body wars there's no horizon line mm, so mm -hmm. the brain the print the brain gets confused as, as to where it's oriented and we think that might have been the catalyst to causing people to lose their lunch i can i've always wondered about that because uh star tours never bothered me but there were a couple of times on body wars where i got a little green around the gills and i started thinking uh oh I think maybe because you just had that heartbeat, so you had that sort of lurching back and forth. Maybe that had something to do sure, with it. Yeah, that too. I don't know. I know at some point they edited the film to take out. There was one point which was particularly troublesome, I suppose, in that regard, and that they kind of brief took a, just a little snippet out of the film. I believe I could be wrong about that, but well, I you know, be honest with you, I don't know. Once I I left the project. I left Epcot completely, and I have no idea what happened after that. What you were done after that? Yeah. Other, well, other than I heard seven years later they closed the pavilion entirely, and I never heard why. I, you know, I think it was probably just another one of those uh, sponsorship things when, when the sponsor goes. Yeah. You know, you never know. Well, so you let you leave Epcot. Where where do you wind up? Okay, I was kind of. You know, I was kind of at a loss. It was, it was a hard period. Uh, I had always been interested in seeing Tokyo. I, I, I don't know why. Ever since a child, I, I've been intrigued by Japanese culture. But I never dwelled on it. But I went over to the gentleman who was in the creative lead on Tokyo Disneyland. and His name was Yoshi Akiyama. And I went, hey, Yoshi, you got anything I might do? On Tokyo, and he goes. As a matter of fact, what we do, we're putting together a concept for a new ride that's going to replace the Circle Vision Theater. I think it was America the Beautiful at the mm -hmm. time. So the team we put together a concept called Saucer Safari, oh. which you you literally fly like a Peter Pan conveyance through this alien landscape. And there'd be all these little creatures and aliens and stuff, and you, you'd shoot at them. And there was a gentleman named T. He who, who had done a shooting gallery years before. We took some of his ideas, turned them into aliens. So, like, when you hit them, you know, the head would pop open and another little alien would pop up or the stomach uh -huh. would open up and there'd be something else in there. All these crazy, wild things. Well, I flew to Tokyo. We presented... The, the idea to, to the Oriental Land Company, who owns Tokyo Disneyland, went out, saw Tokyo. Yoshi showed me all over the place, showed me, and, and um, one of the others that worked on it, Ann Talnis, who is now a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist in Washington, D.C. Wow. But we, uh, we had a good time just seeing the sights in Tokyo, went back to, to OLC, and they said, we're not going to do the ride. It's not Disney enough for us. We don't like the elevated. We don't like a shooting gallery being elevated. Hmm. You know, I, at that point, it's like, yeah, I'm used to being kicked off of things. Don't worry about 
I, I got to see Tokyo. That was my goal. And, and, right. And I, I wasn't too disappointed when they didn't want to. Anyway, I get back to the States and figuring, well, I'll see where I go next. And then Yoshi called me and said, well, OLC wants to adapt the Country Bear Christmas show, which is at Disneyland. I don't know. I think it came to Florida. I'm not sure. It did eventually, yes. It, it took a few years, I think. Yeah. yeah, they wanted to adapt it for the Japanese country bears. The Japanese said, you know, we don't really know a lot of the music that's in the, the American version. You know, because there was a lot of original tunes written for that show. Mm-hmm. We would like to have more Christmas music, actual Christmas music in there. I'm thinking, you're Japanese. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? But they gave me a list of songs that, that, that are known in Japan. Uh, Christmas it doesn't have the same meaning, but they do have, a, it is kind of a fun holiday for them. Mm-hmm. So I worked for a while with them on, um, well, this character could sing this one, this character could sing that. We eventually came to a, an agreement on which show, which songs would be sung by which character, and, and we ended up with a show that everybody uh, was happy with. So, next thing I know, I'm in Tokyo in June, which is one of the hot, more hot, sweltering months in Tokyo, recording Japanese actors trying to sound like backwoods country bears singing Christmas carols. <laughs> Uh, this is this is weird. How do you cast for that? Do you did they have people who went out and did casting for? Uh, th- that's a pretty unique assignment, I would imagine. Well, they they had cast the original show. Oh, of course. So they had those actors. The one thing that was a great surprise to me and, and the the gentleman that played um, Henry. Mm-hmm. Oh God, what was Takarada? I'm. I, I, I should know this because it was one of my favorite movies growing up was the original Godzilla film. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the stars in that movie. Oh, wow. And I got to talk to him about that and how much I enjoyed the movie. He didn't look anything like he did, you know, in the fifties, but, but he was that's, a yeah, great guy. Cool. He had a, he had a restaurant. He took us all out to dinner at his restaurant <laughs> after recording. Very nice guy. But then, a few months later, I went back to Japan to install the show. Things were going along pretty well. We found out in the soundtrack there was something was missing, that one of the characters was missing. Mm-hmm. And the poor project manager, you know, he'd been sleeping in his car at night because, you know, we were hurrying to get the show open. When he found out that this, was the case he started talking to the audio engineer it was a young kid it was his first time in japan he wasn't very diplomatic toward the japanese he says that's no big deal we'll get it done don't worry about it you know well this guy blew up he Mm. blew up i stepped in between the two of them i said look i'm the senior wdi guy here why don't you take it out on me and we'll get it straightened out well he on he 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 obviously had been working so hard and very frustrated and he just unloaded on me. And he, I, I mean, the things he was saying, I'm going to get, Oh my God, I don't want anything to do with this clown. 
I went back to the hotel that night. I emptied the bar of scotch, the, the <laughs> mini bar of scotch. That didn't do anything. I decided, oh, I'm going to go walking off. Well, you don't walk around Tokyo because it's so crowded. You know, I was dodging people left and right. That just made me madder and madder and madder. Next morning, I get to work, and he called me over and said, look, can we have lunch? And can we talk about this? I said, absolutely. And we sat down and had a very cordial discussion. And I assured him that we would get the problem fixed in time for the show to open. And, you know, I phoned at home, and sure enough, we everything got taken care of. And the show opened to be relatively successful. I understand they're, they're, they're getting rid of all the uh, seasonal shows now, the bear shows. It's just going to stay with the original show. But oh, really? I know that they've uh, they've... Not run the seasonal ones here, but I think in Japan they still they still run. Uh, from the people I know who go to Japan a lot, says it looks uh, it looks beautiful. They keep great uh, keep it in great condition, and as far as I know, they still run the uh, they still alternate them out. Now that might change. I don't know. But. I think I just read recently that they're definitely not going to do the vacation summer show anymore. Oh, okay, interesting, interesting. But yeah, that that's that Christmas show was a big hit. I, I mean, I I only saw it here in America, obviously, but uh, that was a that was a fun show, and we had done an episode about that. And I had wondered why the songs were different in the Japanese version. So that's that's a very interesting, you know, interesting reason that that you put forward of of why it changed. Well, that you know, and the theory is Tokyo Disneyland is an American park in Tokyo, right. You know? And, and by putting more American Christmas music in it, I guess, added to that philosophy. Although the park's changing dramatically over the years, getting more and more Asian things in there. But, you know, that had to happen. Yeah. But originally, I mean, they very famously wanted it to be, you know, they wanted Main Street to be Main Street and... I wanted to keep in all the little Americanisms. I find yep. that really interesting. Whereas we were calling it World Bazaar because we were going to put shops from all around the world along that street. Yeah. And it got, officially got named World Bazaar to the point where the, the name was in all the documentation so that when it was decided, it was no, it was going to be an American Main Street, we couldn't go back and change the name. Interest. I've had. I've heard people wonder in the past why it, why the name was never changed to be Main Street after it clearly became Main Street. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I wasn't there when that happened, but uh, I, I had to write so much about all these parks later on, and uh, I, I learned so much about the creation of the parks, and I did a whole thing about the American flags that are flown all over. Tokyo oh, Disneyland, wow. you know, some are from the proper time period, others aren't, and we should change this and that. And I don't know whatever happened to that because I left after before anything any acted on it. But the problem was is that the Mark Twain Riverboat had fifty star flags flying on top of its top roof, and it's. There was a specific rule that we were to never show a 50-star flag in Tokyo Disneyland because it, Interesting. it, it would it, insinuate conquering, 
the Americans have conquered. And we didn't want to bring up any anything that would remind people of that dark period in their history. Interesting. But because they could get, you know, all these little hundred or fifty star flags cheaper than getting the right time frame, they they went for where the money went and they put the 50 star flags all of the top deck. That's an, that's a very interesting thing to have to keep. Well, first, you know, you want to keep it period accurate to begin with and frontier land or, or Western land. Uh, yeah. would, um, and on main street. Uh, yeah. Those are the things you never really think about to consider, but yeah, I would imagine that's, that's interesting. Well, Scott, we've done this for about an hour and a half now, and you've still got a lot of career left to go. Would, <laughs> would you be interested in maybe making this a two-parter? Absolutely. I'm more than happy to do that. Great, great. That wraps up part one of our conversation with Scott Hennessy. Jeff, uh, a busy man, Mr. Hennessy. Yes, very busy. And you know what's remarkable to me is so many of, you know, we love all who come to the town hall and we don't pick favorites. But, you know, I love a guy like Scott who is just so humble and is just uh, so just such a great conversationalist. So, you know, into the team ethos, you know, he doesn't like it sometimes when stuff doesn't go his way, but he lets it go and he can, you know, admit that what came after was also good. And yeah, you know, he's just such a, he seems like a great guy. I wish I would have been in there with you talking to him. Cause just love that guy. Yeah. Uh, really, really good. And uh, always willing to recognize all the talent that he worked with. I mean, these teams that they had put together, like the team that Roley had on the land working together, just such great talents, all all of them. So it is really good to see. And, you know, I, I know how difficult it is when a project you're working on doesn't go the way you'd like to see it go. And, yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of character to sort of suck it up and move on from that. Yeah. Because it, it can be hard because you put, you know, put heart and soul into this sort of thing. Well, and some of its character, some of it's the, just the sheer volume of work he did. You know, there's just hits and misses sometimes and, you know, stuff just doesn't work out for whatever reason. Um, and then, you know, something you do gets picked up. So it's, uh, you know, just an incredible career of work. I, I really hope we can get him back for a part two and talk to him. And uh, I just want to hear more of his stories. Yeah, he is. He has agreed to return. We haven't recorded it yet, but uh, I he he goes on uh, spoiler alert to Japan and works on many many things there for those oh, excellent, parks. Excellent. So uh, that that'll be an interesting perspective to hear uh, when we get him back, which uh, hopefully will be very soon. I look forward to hearing that. You know, Michael, we have been on a little bit of a break, and I'm just going to go ahead and fall on the sword and say that you know stuff and. My life has been a little hectic. There's been some transitions at play, but 
I'm very bullish that uh, the later part of the fall into the winter, we're going to have some real um, real stuff going on, Michael. Yeah, Good. absolutely. I'm really looking forward to getting back into things. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, we've got, we're on the cusp of the 100th anniversary of the company. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's plenty to talk about and plenty of people to talk to. Well, the other thing is I've heard it's going to be a very cold winter uh, down here in the southeast. So we've got to get some, you know, some Christmas stuff coming up not too far from now. And, you know, some maybe another snow show or something, you know, so have to think of some themed stuff to, but we're working on some, you know, some plans. So I'm excited about that. In the meantime, we continue on uh, doing a live stream every month. And if you are not tuning into our live streams, well, it's gotten pretty lively in there, Michael. If if somebody wanted wanted to see us streamed, what would they do and what would they see? Well, my gosh, they should go to patreon.com slash USA, sign up for our Patreon you get early access to episodes. You get access to a progress city library. Oh, stuff that I've scanned into the computer now in a new location, more easily accessible and, uh, all sorts of other goodies. Uh, but you know, the big deal is our live stream, our monthly live stream, which has gotten very lively. Uh, we show rare pictures and videos and artwork and, talk about whatever our subject of the month is and we also just have a wonderful chat going on on the side in the chat room and it is a lot of fun it's it's really gotten as you say lively it has and it's always fun we thank everybody who's already involved and you know if you sign up now you're just discovering us or just like well maybe i will see what a live stream is like you get access to all our past live streams. So there's a bunch of wackiness there um, and some good information. And sometimes we have exclusive content and we may have some of that coming down the road fairly soon, I think. So, yes, um, you know, consider signing up. It really helps us to create more. And again, you know, we've got some ideas of, yeah, branching out a little bit. If you have an idea about like, well, it'd be cool if the Patreon subscribers have this, or if you did a podcast episode on this, this is a great time to email us about that. Yes. Email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. And uh, many ways to contact us. I will say that a, a new way, another pay, a Patreon benefit that I even forgot to mention, cause it's, it's, pretty new is that any level you get access to our discord which we started a private discord server and it has been pleasingly active i must now, say now see you know this is a real function of me being way in over my head outside of this podcast i i need to get back on the discord i need to get it in my notifications because every time i log on i'm like man i've been missing out it's so great so thanks for keeping that train rolling as with so many other things uh but yeah join the discord it's a great chance to uh you know there's some things we may say there that we wouldn't say on the podcast for instance and 
you know, fun and games and all that good stuff. I know. Up- updates on what we're working on. And, you know, as I'm doing research, I post stuff that I might, uh, that, that I don't post on Twitter. I'm trying to post stuff secrets. there. So, uh, not really secrets, but just stuff that, you know, I want, I want our backers to have like special stuff. Yes. So I, exclusive. I, I, exclusives. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have a, a Patreon backer get together at retro magic, which is coming up and got another, uh, live stream coming up at the end of this month. I've got a piece of video that is not on the internet anywhere. I hope I keep looking to make sure. <laughs> and I'm really excited to show it. So yeah, there's, there's always fun and games going on. So patreon.com slash progress city USA, it is tax deductible mm-hmm. and uh, we thank you. Yeah. And as Michael said, email us at podcast at progress city USA. We're still on Twitter for now, for now. Um, Michael's at progress city USA. I'm at Jeff G Crawford. No guarantees. You know, it's a good time to, uh, just use email or join our Patreon to be in touch with us. Cause you never know what's going to happen tomorrow with that stuff. But, right. Oh, you know what, Jeff, I forgot. I forgot to thank our patron. We have new patrons. Oh gosh. Yeah. And I totally, I, I totally well, you know what? I to forgot thank. to serve it up. Uh, this is the time now where we do mention our new Patreons, Michael. Has anyone signed up for the Patreon this month? Yes. We, uh, since 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 last we met, uh, we'd like to welcome Zachary, Carolyn, Celeste, and Rob. Uh, all all new folks. So bumper crop. Yeah, uh, we're really uh, really excited to welcome new folks to the chat. So thank you all so much. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you all so much. You really do make it possible for us to be here. And um, just thanks for listening because it does mean a lot to us. And these are a lot of fun to make. I love hearing these stories and Michael's interviews. And, uh, you know, I hope to do some myself coming up. And uh, we will be back with more before you know it. We're going to be back. And... uh, yeah, anything else to say to our dear listeners before we sign off? I know, just thanks for listening. Happy to be back, and uh, we will we will be back with you. All right, from all of us to all of you, we wish you well, and we will see you soon. So long.